A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases every week from around the country. We are recording this on July 29th, 2020, and I'm Anna Garcia, your host. Our guest this week is a friend of mine. I'm so excited that she's with us. Civil rights attorney Ariva Martin, who also has a new show. It's called The Special Report with Ariva Martin. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, Anna. Thank you so much. I was excited that I was going to be able to sit down with you in this new virtual world and have a conversation about crime. So glad to be with you. (laughs) Tell me about your show. Yeah, it's a digital talk show. I've been, uh, it's been broadcasting now for about five months, started around the time that we went into COVID quarantine and really going in depth on some of these big seismic issues that are happening in the country, you know, around race and politics and uh, the coronavirus pandemic. I've had some great guests that I've uh, been able to sit down with, trying to help people make sense about what's going on. I think right now everybody feels so stressed and, you know, there's so much uncertainty in the world and, and they see these violent images sometimes played out in the media around the protests. So we've been talking to protesters. We've been talking to Black Lives Matter leaders, uh, Congress people, uh, policymakers, influencers, just trying to help people understand what's happening. Just did a show about the violence in Chicago. Uh, I'm going to be sitting down with Reverend Jesse Jackson. You know, he's an iconic civil rights leader who. Uh, knows a lot about a lot, so uh, just excited about being able to bring people uh, good information and uh, expert analysis. You know, I've had the good fortune of working with experts across the spectrum all over the country, so I get to bring a lot of my friends on to share their brilliance, uh, you know, with my viewers. So excited about that, and, uh, you know, I do my nonprofit work with Special Needs Network, so I've been keeping busy in the pandemic. Yeah, so. and that's how Ariva and I know each other through the charity world and helping to raise money for your charity, yes. um, making sure the kids have the opportunity with who have autism to be able to yeah. go to camps and get all the support, which I'm sure right now is is really difficult, especially yeah. for a special needs child. Yeah, you'd be uh, happy to know, Anna, our Fame Camp J Pack, which the event Pink Pump, which you were honored at a couple of years ago, where we raised money for the camp starts next week online. So we had to create this whole virtual camp experience. We, you know, we thought about, do we just skip a year? And we says, no, it's too important, particularly during this period. Uh, you know, we wanted to give kids that same uh, camp opportunity. So we figured out how to do it via Zoom. <laughs> so we're going to have about 300 kids uh, every day for two weeks uh, on Zoom, doing everything from art to music to dancing, uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. So we're excited about that. Oh, I'm so glad that you're doing the camp, even if it's virtually. That's so, that's great news. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah. Well, you're here to share your brilliance with us. These are the two cases we have this week. Ariva, a man in Montana was charged with 64 counts of child sex abuse. However, he was only sentenced to one year deferred after reaching a plea deal this this is outrageous we're going to talk about that in a minute but first a man from new york has allegedly confessed to stabbing then dismembering his wife while on vacation in the south of france billy Kruger was arrested last week as he was about to board a plane to leave france he was arrested in the departure area 
of the Toulouse airport. And his arrest came hours after police found his wife, 52-year-old Lori Bardina Kruger. She was in a storm drain near the family's home. It's... It, it's, I mean, I realize that domestic violence and these kinds of issues do happen all over the world. Yeah. But it, it, what's interesting about this case that may be a little different from others is that family members and close friends have said that there were no warning signs, that they didn't yeah. seem to have a violent relationship, that there had been no complaints that either the had violence. shared. Yeah. So it almost feels like if it just like erupted. Yeah, like a fit of rage, like something happened. They were actually at their vacation home, which also makes this so unusual. You think about, you know, a couple going on vacation is supposed to be stress free. It's supposed to be enjoyable. But, you know, given the lack of history, at least what we're hearing from the family and friends in terms of any violence in that relationship, you have to wonder, was there some big, you know, argument that caused this husband to go into such a rage that he would not only kill, but to dismember you know, someone that you were married to, that you loved, is pretty, uh, that's pretty extreme behavior. Uh, and, you know, he thought he was going to get away with it. He actually, you know, tried to hide her body parts and he was on his way to take a flight. And it was her family that got worried about her because she didn't show up at a family gathering that caused them to call authorities to, you know, look for her to see what was going on. But, uh, you know, it, he could have gotten away, at least gotten on an airplane and traveled uh, that would have made, you know, apprehending him perhaps even more difficult. So uh, as, you know, horrible as the story is, I, I guess the, the good news or the silver lining is at least they caught him. You know, th they at least caught him and this family can at least get some kind of justice by him being prosecuted uh, and having to face consequences for his just heinous uh, act of, you know, of killing this woman. Because even after you kill your spouse, which is violent enough and horrendous yeah. enough, then like, where does your mind go that you decide, oh, I'm going to chop up my wife and now I'm going to carry her body parts into a sewer and then I'm going to just shove her into the sewer drain, which, you know, in itself says a lot about how he felt about our piece of trash. It's so yeah. symbolic, right? So I, that's the part I never get. Like, Look, I think everyone is probably at some point capable of going into a horrible rage in, in a situation and someone can be hurt. But it, then it's what you do after Afterward. that. Yeah. And no remorse, obviously. You know, no second thoughts. No, no regret. No, oh, my God, what have I done? Let me call the authorities. Let me turn myself in. Uh, you know, in, in some rare instances, we do see that. We see where someone not only either turns themselves in or calls the authorities, sometimes it's a homicide, you know, and a suicide. They realize what they've done and they kill themselves because, you know, the act is so heinous or, you know, they realize that the, the consequences are going to be so grave. Not in this case. This guy must, I mean, in, in some ways, he is acting like a calculated, cold-blooded murderer to cut the body up, you know, to try to conceal the murder and then to casually, you know, travel to an airport with the intent of leaving the scene of the crime and, and not facing any consequences. So I don't know, you know, did the family members miss something? You know, was there violence that was happening in this relationship that perhaps wasn't visible to those relatives or to those friends? Because I know having been involved in a lot of domestic violence situations, some abusers are really good at hiding it. 
I mean, they can really put on a show. Uh, I can remember a woman uh, that I was representing some years ago, her husband would beat her horribly and he would make her make herself unavailable for family. So she was away, she was traveling so that it would give her time for her bruises to heal. And this went on for years and it went on, you know, and she was able to hide this abuse from her family. So I, I think in this case, I'm certain that the prosecutors are going to be looking for the history in this relationship. And I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't find that this guy had, you know, some violent past because to go from loving, caring husband to fit of rage to psychopathic type behavior you know, that's a pretty big leap. So I, I bet the prosecutors are going to be looking at his history. Well, they had dinner that night, um, the night that we believed that she was murdered. And yeah. the people who saw them dining out said everything looked perfectly normal. And then, as you said, what triggered the alarm was that her father, she was they were leaving the next day. They were scheduled to leave the next day. And she always says goodbye to the family. Her family lives in that region. That's why they have a summer home there. And so she always goes to personally say goodbye to members of the family. And she yeah. didn't. So the yeah. police did think that that was weird. They realized that the husband had checked in for the flight. They go to the couple's home mm -hmm. and her stuff is still there. You know, but she's not there and the husband is taken off. So um, they were headed back to Jakarta. Apparently, that's where their home mm -hmm. base is. Right. She uh, teaches English there. He's a dive instructor. And, you know, they apparently have lived their lives as a huge adventure living all over the world. They have relatives from all over the world and friends because on Facebook, you could see all the postings. Um, her brother... Pierre wrote on Facebook, apparently the couple has a son named Maximus, and Maximus was able to leave. He, he left ahead of his parents, and he wrote that, you know, my nephew is now an orphan. His mother's been killed, and his father is behind bars, which is horrible, again, for the surviving yeah. children. Uh, the brother wrote on Facebook, we got confirmation yesterday by police that my sister was murdered by her husband, um, he goes on to say, we don't know all the facts yet, but we've never had an alarm signal from Lori about violent acts against her from her husband. Again, reinforcing the where did this come from? You know, it just seems so extraordinary. So um, the husband was checked in to go to Jakarta. Yeah. He was in the departure area. He has now been charged with aggravated murder. We don't know whether he's entered a plea or gotten an attorney yet in the French court system. But obviously, the fact that he's an American and has dual citizen citizenship doesn't really matter. Everything is going to take, take place in France, correct? Yeah, no, that's where the crime occurred, and that's where he'll be prosecuted. That's where the trial will take place. And even though we don't know what his official response is to the charges that have been made against him, there are reports that he's claiming this was self-defense. So we shouldn't be surprised if, if he tries to assert that somehow she attacked him first and that he was fearful of his life. Now, again, a big leap from she attacked me, I had to respond, and maybe in the tussle or in this altercation, you know, she ends up dead. You know, how do you get from that to cutting up her body? So even though there's some reports that he's going to claim self-defense, I think it's going to be DOA. I just can't see him making a credible argument 
uh, that somehow he was defending himself. And in the course of defending himself, he had to cover, you know, chop her body up. So uh, it's a legal defense and he's entitled to make it. And we see it happen oftentimes in cases that look like they should be pretty shut and closed. We, you know, we will see these kind of legal defenses asserted by defendants. Okay, we will watch this one from afar. (laughs) Yeah, sad. Ariva, our next case, a Montana man who was charged with 64 child sex crimes has entered into a plea deal. Now, this plea deal means that he may never spend any more time in prison because they're using time served pretty much to fill out his sentence. He's receiving a one-year deferred prison sentence. 51-year-old William Edward Miller Jr. was arrested in February of 2019 after a 14-year-old high school student accused him of raping her at her home the year before. And she also said as part of that, that he allowed an 11-year-old boy to rape her as he watched. This was a separate encounter. Explain to me how it is possible that, that something so heinous can end up with, oh, you know what? We're going to get rid of all those other charges and you can just go home now. Yeah, this is really an outrageous case. And it's kind of confusing because there are a lot of parts to the case. So there's the allegation of rape of the 14-year-old girl who says that this defendant raped her and that he allowed uh, another 11-year-old boy to rape her as well. And then there are allegations of child pornography, that his telephone, uh, his computer were you know, just full of pornographic images of minors. Uh, and we know there's also a charge of a 17-year-old who's now a 19-year-old who we since has married, uh, that there were some charges related to a, you know, a sexual misconduct against her when she was a minor. She now is testifying in favor of and is accusing the prosecutors in this case of overreaching and saying he's a good man and that he shouldn't be charged uh, with anything. There's also some uh, allegations in this case that he was making phone calls to uh, her, the 17-year-old who's now the 19-year-old, trying to get her to go to his home so that uh, she could destroy some of these pornographic images that were on his computer. So it's not clear that he is being charged with this rape, which would be a very serious charge for which you would expect to see uh, you know, a much more severe p- uh, penalty beyond the one year that's at this point looks like is going to be a deferred one year sentence. So not clear from the evidence that's been reported out if the charges are have been reduced to this amount because of the lack of evidence to support uh, the pornography that apparently was found eventually by the police on his computer, or if there's not enough evidence to support the rape charge being made by the 14-year-old. Well, clearly the prosecutors must have felt that they could not get a conviction if they're willing to go from 64 counts to about one or two counts. You know, it just it doesn't it just doesn't fly. And and just to give everyone a little bit of background. OK, l- let's go through the alleged rape and then we can explain how the um, the next search and the pornography and the bestiality and all the other stuff plays in here. All right. So. The girl said that William Miller used to visit the family's house regularly, okay, and that she always felt very uncomfortable around him. She said that in March of 2018 that she was alone in her bedroom with her door locked, and she claims that William Miller picked the lock and then entered 
her bedroom and then relocked the door from the inside. She claims that he took off his clothes, covered her mouth, and he raped her. This is all from a public affidavit. The girl also claimed that sometime in the following month, which would have been in April of 2018, Miller allowed an 11-year-old boy to rape her. According to court documents, the girl told her father, and he asked her to put all these details into writing, and for whatever reason, she didn't want to do that, so he asked her, could she tell her story, and he would videotape it. So, I guess the the father videotaped it, and then there was a follow-up forensic investigation. And in that forensic investigation, um, the girl explained to the police that Miller was always hitting on her and always using really graphic language about what he wanted to do to her. And apparently, when this incident took place, the one where she was allegedly raped, her mother and her sister were both home. Now... What's also interesting is, according to the court records, when she told a teacher what had happened, it was the teacher who then contacted police. So it's very, this is the part, I think, where things get very confusing. It's the it's the teachers and the school, they're mandatory reporters, they contact the police, right? The father, you know, she supposedly tells the father, the father tries to get this all in writing, and, and this guy, the alleged attacker, is a friend of the father's. So yeah, I was, gonna, I was gonna say right there for me, Anna. I, the story gets crazy. Why is the father asking the daughter to write out a rape? So if if you are a fourteen year old and you say, "Dad, someone has touched me. Someone has raped me," is your first instinct really for your daughter to write out an affidavit, to write out a statement? I, I, I don't understand what went wrong or why didn't we see this father immediately contact the police and then this, 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 you know, he concocts this whole investigation himself. He videotapes his daughter. I mean, how humiliating is that for your dad to, you know, I, I don't know, he's playing like junior detective here, you know, junior PI with this videotaping, with this statement that he wants her to write. I just find that incredibly bizarre. Maybe it's a friendship. And we do see this, unfortunately, in cases uh, involving uh, minors. We've seen cases where minors are, you know, they accuse an adult of sexual assault or rape and they're not believed. Uh, and even their own parents oftentimes won't believe them. And, and maybe that was, going, that was what was going on in the mind of her dad because this is very unusual for him to ask her to write it out. Like, Isn't that bizarre? Like, why, Dad? <laughs> I just told you the most horrible thing on the planet has happened to me. And your response is, put it in writing? Yeah, and she refused, you know. And, and, well, and, kudos to her for refusing to do that, but... Yeah, that I have to admit, that, that part is very strange. And by the time it finally got to the forensic investigators, so they, of course, they also talked to that 11-year-old boy. And the 11-year-old boy was interviewed, and he denied that it happened, and the police wrote in their reports that they believed that the boy's answers had been rehearsed. They sensed, it was their gut, that the boy was not being truthful about what was going on. Now, I, and, and the other thing that the girl said was, she told the police that the reason she didn't, I, I guess she went to her dad, but she didn't go to the police immediately, was because Miller had threatened to kill her and her family, which... 
you know, when there, when an abuser tries to continue to abuse or abuse a minor, and this is a control issue, you know, the minor is generally really frightened that they are going to hurt the family. But when you think about it, Anna, she did exactly what we would want a 14-year-old to do. She told her parents and she told her teacher. I mean, you really wouldn't expect a 14-year-old to pick up the phone and call 911 or to somehow try to get, you know, to the police department. That's just not, you know, the, the thinking of a 14-year-old. She did exactly what we would want a teenager to do in this situation is to tell the people who she believes are entrusted to take care of her and to protect her, your parents and your teachers. And the fact that, you know, the, the parents in this case, and again, I, I say the dad failed her because rather than going immediately to the police, he, you know, he gets involved in this really ridiculous investigation himself. Uh, and the 11-year-old, again, he's a kid. You know, I, I'm not surprised that his comments seem rehearsed because he, you know, faces, even though he's a minor, he also could be facing, you know, charges. He could be facing, you know, uh, you know, being put into juvenile detention. So, you know, somebody, maybe Miller, got to him to say, hey, this is what you need to do. This is the story you need to tell. I don't think that that linkage was made, though, that the police don't really say who is the person that was, you know, rehearsing the 11 year old's response. So at this point in the case, they have police believe that they have enough to arrest him. And they do. They arrest him and they set bond at two hundred thousand dollars. And he is charged with with the rape charges. Okay, so now the case actually against him gets stronger, if you will, because then in August of 2019, state prosecutors filed an extra 64 counts of sexual abuse of children against William after investigators allegedly found images of child pornography and bestiality on his phone, on his laptop. More than 6,000 images of bestiality. Oh, my God, how depraved. So police... Uh, managed to get this search warrant. It's very interesting how they did this when they got the search warrant to, to go into his house. Two things were happening. You know, when you're sitting in a jail and you're making phone calls or people are visiting you, mm-hmm. always remember they're being recorded. They're listening. Yes. <laughs> listening. Yes. So apparently he told a bunch of his friends and family, hey, do me a favor. Go to my house. I got some photos. You have to destroy yeah. them. Right. Okay. So already the the police are like, ding, 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 ding. Something's going on. He's got something at the house we need to see. Separate and in addition to that was this woman who was actually a girl at the time. Right. Who, um, police got a tip that she was headed to the home and that she wanted. Um, they thought she was going to destroy evidence. And right. in a way, she claims that, yes, she was only because they were pictures of her. And she didn't want the police to get them, and she was a minor, and she was engaged in sexual acts. And so, um, police managed to st- to intervene before she gets right. to destroy them. Okay. And um, Miller's mother is still living at his house, and she's, like, following, following the cops around as they're trying to get things. And she's <laughs> like, and they're taking this, and they're looking at this. You know, yeah. you can imagine. And she's talking to the girl on the phone. This is what's so crazy and bizarre about this, so... Okay, right? Okay, so everyone's trying to protect this guy. All yeah. the women in his life apparently are trying to to protect him, but they do seize the the um items and yeah. they do confirm that there were 
pictures of child pornography, bestiality. Well, remember, everything. they didn't have a search warrant at that time for the computer. They had to store the computer at the police department and wait until they could get a warrant to actually go on and then just, you know, to uh, discover all of this, you know, depraved material, por you know, pornography on the computer. Now, do you think, so, so the cops said that they, the reason they took the laptop they they did not have the search warrant. Is there a different kind of a search warrant, a digital kind of a search warrant to enter into computers and phones? Well, the, the search warrant has to be based on, you know, what do they have probable cause for? So at this point, they didn't have probable cause to know that there could be, you know, this pornographic material on that computer. So the search warrant, they had to go and, and build a case for why they should be allowed to look at that computer. Uh, so then they did that, I'm sure, by listening to the phone calls that he's making uh, and perhaps even interviewing the young woman who is now the wife who was actually sent to the house to retrieve these items. So oftentimes police will go into a home uh, because they have a search warrant to search your home. And now they've got to get an additional search warrant to go into your laptop or to your, your cell phone because they've got to establish that there's evidence or there's the likelihood of evidence uh, to support a crime that's actually being stored on one of those devices. So they took the computer into custody, but presumably yes. until they got the search warrant, they couldn't search Open the it, content. search it, yes. Absolutely. Which is, you know, which is interesting. And I, again, I have no idea what happened during this plea deal, right? Because, and you can certainly shed some light on it. So, I mean, how is it that you go from a case that seems almost bulletproof okay, we get the, the he said, she said, and we don't know what kind of forensic testing there was on the girl. We don't know any of that. But what I'm saying is it seems like the like there's a lot of evidence on one side. So how does it go from like 64 to nothing? Or what? Yeah, a couple of things. And again, we don't have the records to show this. So I'm going to just uh, surmise based on my experience. You have a 14-year-old girl. Obviously, he's not being charged. The, the rape charge has been reduced, so that's been a part of this plea deal. So he's no longer facing these serious rape charges. So either in interviewing the 14-year-old, the police found her statements to have some holes in it. Maybe she wasn't as credible of a witness. You know, maybe, you know, the, the sequence of events didn't line up. Uh, the 11-year-old, although rehearsed, uh, again, perhaps their stories, you know, they, they could not corroborate the uh, testimony and the statements of the 14-year-old girl. So something went wrong in terms of the ability to establish and to prove the very serious rape charges involving Miller and the 14-year-old girl and the 11-year-old. Uh, when I look at the 64 charges that stem from what was found on that computer, again, I, I question whether there were issues with the issuance of that warrant. Were there right. problems with that warrant that caused them to not be able to, you know, use to submit into court, into evidence, the 6,000 images that they actually found uh, stored on the laptop and the, the cell phone? And that's common. Unfortunately, you know, even when there is the evidence there, the question becomes, how was the evidence obtained? And if there's not the proper, you know, procedures aren't followed. Uh, that protect the constitutional rights that Miller has. He you know, still has his constitutional rights at this point. Uh, and if there was something wrong with that search, if there was something wrong with that seizure, then that evidence wouldn't be admissible and they would have no choice 
uh, but to uh, you know reduce the charges or to enter in some kind of plea deal, which is what we saw in this case. Because some of the statements I read from the judge, you know, seemingly expressing how horrendous the case was, but that she had no uh, choice, uh, you know, in terms of the sentencing that she was handing down. So, and we see that a lot, uh, you know, in cases where evidence appears to be really clearly uh, establishing a crime against a particular, you know, defendant or person that's been charged, but then there's something wrong with the way that evidence was gathered. And that doesn't necessarily mean that a crime was not committed. Oh, absolutely not. It doesn't mean that that person is innocent. I mean, it doesn't mean that this 14-year-old girl wasn't raped. Doesn't mean that Miller didn't do it. Doesn't mean that the 11-year-old didn't do it. Doesn't mean that those 6,000 images don't exist on that computer. Again, it just comes down to the process and the procedure. And in our criminal justice system, if that procedure for gathering that evidence is, is somehow, if, if a step is missing, you know, it, or if the police did not follow, you know, the constitutional way in which evidence has to be gathered, then it can mean the whole case, in some instances, has to be dismissed. So he eventually struck a plea deal with the prosecutors, and what he pleaded guilty to is one right. count of sexual abuse of children, and he pleaded guilty to unsworn falsification to authorities. The other 63 charges dropped. Um, yeah. So he was sentenced to six months in the county detention center with credit for the 384 days which he had already served. Therefore, he's basically, that's why he's walking because it's a deferred sentence. He's getting yeah. credit for the time he was in prison. I Excuse me, in jail. jail. So the judge, Elizabeth Best, sentenced him to that one-year deferred sentence and she also ordered him to complete sex offender treatment in the community. And as you said, she had a lot to say. And here is her quote. She emphasized that she could only sentence Miller on the two charges before her. And she could not consider the previous charges that had been filed against her. And this is what she said, quote, I think it's real easy and it's easy for the courts from the bench to use these offenses as an opportunity to grandstand and to make statements for the newspaper and TV. They're very, very loaded charges. They're very difficult charges to defend against. So, you know, it, it, I think what she's basically saying is my hands were tied. Yeah, absolutely. In a nutshell, I can't really do anything about those charges that were dropped. The law doesn't allow me to punish him for those charges that were dropped. And, and not only that, I have to follow the sentencing guidelines for the charges that remain. And unfortunately, the consequences for the, the charges that remain are pretty low. You know, they're, they're pretty restrictive. So here's a guy that I'm, I'm imagining this female judge is sitting here saying, here's a, you know, a predator, a sexual predator. And I've got to let him basically walk, you know, a proverbial, a proverbial walk is what this guy is getting. A, yeah. a slap on the wrist, you know, is really what he's getting. And so, you know, the woman who was really pivotal in a lot of this was the woman who would have been underage that he had photos of who he had married three months earlier, which is, I'm a little confused here when exactly he married her because well, the photos were taken. Because it's not clear how old she right. was. She was 17 and now she's 19. Okay. And she, again, she claimed those photos were of her. Now the age of consent for sex in Montana is 16. Here's what's interesting. So she was of age to have sex with him. However, in Montana, in order to be 
photographed, anyone under the age of 18 photographed in any suggestive or sexual nature is considered pornography. Now, how confusing is that? Well, and then let's add another layer. She said she took the pictures. So she's also claiming that he did not take the pictures, that she had body image issues and that she took the pictures as a way of, you know, expressing her femininity, her beauty and dealing with her body image issues. And this is the wife now because she's, you know, legally married to him who's, you know, making statements in support of him. Uh, so. 17-year-old having sex, obviously, with a 50-year-old man. Somebody's taking nude pictures of her. They end up, you know, uh, on this electronic device. And now, two years later, she's saying he's a great guy and that the system is being too hard on him. Ariva, because she ah. is now his wife, could she testify against him? They couldn't force her, right? Yeah, they're not going to force her to testify against him. Very difficult. There are some exceptions to the marital privilege in some situations where a wife can be. Uh, I, I don't see anything in this case based on what we have before us uh, that would support that. Uh, and But I think what she is doing is supporting him by you know taking responsibility for these photographs, saying that she took them, giving us a reason, saying, oh, no, this isn't pornography. This is just a young woman grappling with, you know, body image issues. And this is a guy that is not the beast that you all are describing, but this is my loving husband. In fact, I feel bad for this teenage girl. And I wonder where are her parents? We're talking oh. about parents, you know. Well, this is what she told the judge, Ariva. William is a kind, compassionate, empathetic man. Never has he manipulated yeah. me or controlled me, she said. I ask that we be free of this charge. I feel that we have suffered enough and I am not a victim of my husband. Yeah. I'm sure all of this continued to complicate this case, right? So it looks as we continue to write, as this evolves, like the case is falling apart, you know? Just yeah, the witnesses are falling apart. There's something going on with the 14-year-old. We already know, you know, the police thought the 11-year-old was rehearsed. And now the wife is saying this is a loving, kind husband who should be let go. And again, we, we have the judge, you know, her statement, very veiled statement, but clearly one of frustration about having to give, you know, a pretty light sentence to and, Miller. And what's also interesting um, about his sentence is that if he remains... Um, while he's on probation, if he doesn't commit any crimes at all, right. doesn't get into any trouble, then they're actually going to remove him from the sex, sex offender registry. registry. Yeah. I am like, mind-boggling. Yeah. I mean, it just, My. the case is just like, just crumbling. So Miller, the, the man accused here, he had a chance to say something to the judge. And this is what he said. He said, all of this that happened to me, my wife, our kid, has just been a tragic thing. It's destroyed our lives and we're suffering. I've served time in jail for stuff that I didn't even do. Mm -hmm. And he also told the judge, I'm a good person, but this is, my, this is my favorite part, he says. I'm a good person, but I've had really bad luck. I would say, no, <laughs> you've had some very good luck good at the luck, end yeah. because everything has been dropped against you. Yeah, You're free no. to go, buddy. You're the luckiest man on earth because, but for the weaknesses, the issues in this case, this is a guy that you can imagine spending, he's 51 now, maybe life, 
you know, for him, a 20 year stint could be life for him. So yeah, I think he has that backwards. He's not unlucky. He's very lucky. Agreed. Time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. A Michigan woman is charged with arson after a car fire explodes in her face. And if you've seen this photo, it's insane. It doesn't make any sense. So a Frasier woman has been charged with setting a car on fire. Now, the video shows her filling an SUV with gas. But Ariva, she's not filling the gas tank. The woman is putting the gasoline into the back of the SUV on on the seat in the back, right. okay? The window is down. The gas can is by her feet. And and so she's poured it in there and she has lit this car on fire. Um, this happened at an apartment complex. So again, it didn't happen at a gas station. It's not right. like this was an accident. And yes. when you look at the photo and she, it's just, it looks like, oh my God, how did she not get burned, you know, standing there right as this, SUV is set on fire. So her name is Sydney Parham, 26 years old. She was arrested and charged with third degree arson. The sheriff's office said that Parham and the owner of the vehicle know each other. We know where this is going, don't we, Ariva? Yeah, they call her an acquaintance. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Somebody clearly wasn't happy here. Um, she was treated for cuts and some burns. Um, no one else was injured in this incident. Just herself and then the vehicle as she's due in court uh, August 5th. Okay, these are the comments. Darlene S. writes, stupid is as stupid does. Uh, Deborah F. writes, karma caught her fast. That's, yes, it was instantaneous, I think. And then uh, Jennifer H. writes, oh, honey, that photo is just I know. It's really scary, though. Like you said, this woman could have literally been burned all over her body. I mean, basically, you're talking about a gas explosion happening. Maybe she's trying to get back. This is some kind of revenge crime. Uh, little did she know that not only did she put herself in harm's way, now she's facing arson charges. So in addition to having to heal physically, she's going to have to deal with these criminal charges as well. So not the best idea. If you're angry with an acquaintance, stay away from the gas tank. And remember, cameras <laughs> everywhere, people, whether everywhere. they are mounted or in people's hands, cameras everywhere. Yeah. This is the other case that our listeners are all talking about. A New Jersey Starbucks employee has been arrested for allegedly spitting into the drinks belonging to police officers. A Starbucks worker in New Jersey allegedly spat in officers' drinks. Park Ridge police say the department received information that an employee of a local coffee shop was spitting into the drinks of any law enforcement person that patronized that Starbucks. Park Ridge officers arrested Kevin Trujillo. He is 21 years old on charges of subjecting a law enforcement officer to contact with bodily fluid, knowingly tampering with a cup of coffee while knowing it was ordered by a law enforcement officer, therefore creating a hazardous or physically dangerous condition. Very interesting the way the charges are described. I don't know what this guy was thinking. It was really stupid well, if you, right? He's mad at the police, obviously. That's clear. Right. That there are many ways to demonstrate your anger and frustration at police, at the system. There are many, many ways to do it. Yeah. You know, it's uh, unfortunate. I'd rather see this young man, you know, out peacefully protesting. There are lots of protests all over the country that you can join in. Uh, there are lots of forums online where you can express your feelings, but uh, again, out of a job now in the criminal justice system over something pretty stupid. 
and I can imagine, you know, that's a little scary for police officers who have to go into a Starbucks thinking, you know, it's someone who's angry at the, you know, the police, the concept of police, not that person individually, because they don't even know that individual officer, but maybe just because they wear a badge and a uniform, you know, somebody may decide to ugh, spit in their coffee. Kind of scary and gross. I, I also think it's very cowardly because if that yeah. person has an issue with police, police reform, that individual officer, then I say, have the balls to talk to that person who's standing in front of you and have that conversation. You need to say something? Well, you might as well say it. Look, either way, the guy got fired. But yeah. one, one at least is more honorable to say how you feel, right? To express yourself and have a conversation and maybe get some information out of it, as opposed to like a little coward in the back, spitting into someone's coffee. Give me a break. Yeah, uh, spitting is not a form of protest. So no, don't do it. Don't <laughs> Anybody do it. Want, listening to this, don't do it. Yeah. All right. So this, these are the comments. Gloria G writes, one of the reasons I won't eat or drink anything unless it's at home. Okay, that's true, because we've heard all these stories of people doing mm -hmm. weird things at fast food places. JW writes, what was it called? A mocha chocolate spatuccino venti? Okay. <laughs> and all right, a little H, comedy there. There, there you go. Okay, and NH writes, he's a piece of work. You're fired. I have to agree. Yeah. What a mess. He's, he's got to go. Ariva, this has just been wonderful. Thank you so Thank much for you. joining us. Thank you. I always enjoy seeing you and, and great sitting down and being a part of, of today's episode. Thank you. So where can people find you on social media if they want to follow you, see you? Yes, you can follow me at Ariva Martin on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. You can uh, check out my show, The Special Report with Ariva Martin, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, broadcast on Facebook Live from Los Angeles. Uh, 9 a.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. But uh, uh, check in with me. I'm always on social, always uh, commenting on what's going on in the world and love to talk to people all over the country. I see you all the time on CNN. <laughs> I mean, right now it's all Corona all the time, but <laughs> yeah, I always see you when there's talk a about huge that. issue. Yeah, yeah no, it's so many huge issues happening. So uh, just grateful to be a part of the conversation and to be able to help people make sense out of what's happening. These are scary times we're living in, so much going on. So it's always good to uh, be able to have a conversation and, and help people you know, make sense of, of what's happening. Always appreciate you. Always good seeing you and all the good that you do in the community that we live in here in Los Angeles. As always, you can find me at Anna G News. That's Anna with one N. I post a little bit about crime, mostly about my dog. You know, that's just me. <laughs> um, but you know where to find me. And as always, you can find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, really wherever you get your, your podcasts. And of course, on YouTube. And you can also get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm Anna Garcia. Thanks for joining us. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.